Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew's Gospel, to Matthew uh, chapter 6, and we'll begin to read at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you asked Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither uh, will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. Um, we know God will bless always the reading of His Word. Jack Nicholas has long uh, retired, but is still considered to be one of the greatest golfers that ever lived. During his career, he won 117 professional tournaments, including 18 majors, three more than Tiger Woods. But every year, at the start of each new season, he would go to his coach, Jack Grout, and say to him, Jack, teach me how to play golf. And Jack Wright would strip him right back to the fundamentals and teach him how to play golf. Now, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Presumably, as Jews, they had prayed on many occasions, and as disciples, they had followed our Lord's example and spent prolonged periods in prayer too. But in response to that request, feeling their inadequacy when it came to this issue of prayer, our Lord gave them a version of what's recorded for us here in Matthew 6, which has become known as the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is a teaching tool. It strips away everything and takes us back to the essential fundamentals of prayer. And that's what makes this so interesting, because prayer is something that, if we're honest, we all find very difficult, and anything that helps us uh, to pray intelligently and uh, usefully is to be valued. But of how much more value is that instruction that comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? Now, we have looked at this prayer before in our studies on the Sermon on the Mount uh, at the midweek when I first uh, arrived at the church. But I don't apologize for returning to it over these summer Sundays, because like Jack Nicholas, who said to his coach, teach me how to play golf, we need continually to go back to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to pray, to strip it right back to the essential fundamentals of prayer. Now, Jesus in this passage has already given some teaching in prayer. 
In verses 5 to 6, he warns us against the hypocritical praying of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their great motivation in praying was to impress those who listen. It was a performance intended to win praise and admiration of others. Now, Jesus says of such external hypocritical praying, they have received their reward, verse 5. When they have received that little bit of commendation and praise, that's it over. God doesn't regard it. God doesn't accept it. God has nothing more to say. In verse 7, he warns us, on the other hand, not to be like the uh, Gentiles or like the pagans who think they will move a reluctant deity to their whims and wishes by the multiplication of words, that their God must be enticed, prompted, his hand must be forced on behalf of his subjects. Well, says Jesus, that's a pagan concept of God because we have a God as Matthew 7 and verse 11 tells us, who delights to give good gifts to his children. And as verse 8 of chapter 6 says, who knows what we need before we ask him. So when it comes to this whole subject of prayer, negatively Jesus says, don't be like the, the hypocrites, the, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, who use their prayers to impress and don't be superstitious like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their multiplication of, pray, of their prayers or their words. Prayer, says Jesus, uh, is a, a believer coming before God and pouring his heart out to God in this ordered and systematic way. Now, this is vital because prayer is one of the most difficult disciplines in the Christian life. Um, I've been a Christian, I suppose, over 45 years now, and prayer is still something I, I struggle with. And so, if anything helps us to pray, that's bound to be uh, uh, useful uh, to us. Let me, first of all, start with some fundamental principles. What we have in the Lord's prayer is a teaching tool, a teaching device to help us pray. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus teaching that true believing prayer is simply a matter of memorizing these words, saying them by rote, and mechanically giving them back to God? Now, the very context of the Lord's Prayer tells us that's exactly what Jesus doesn't mean. We've already mentioned uh, verse 7, and when you pray, um, or verse 7, sorry, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. And the very context of the Lord prayers, uh, Lord's Prayer forbids meaningless repetition. And yet, no prayer has been so used in meaningless repetition as this one. Notice Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this. The NIV says, this then is how you should pray. Uh, the Greek word is hutu, which uh, means in this manner, in this way, in keeping with this. That's how the authorized version translates it, after this manner, therefore pray ye. 
He did not tell us what to pray, but he is teaching us how to pray. In Scripture, we have many uh, prayers recorded for us, and none of them are a verbatim copy of this one, apart from the one in Luke chapter 11. Uh, But all the prayers of the apostles in the New Testament can be fitted into some aspect of the skeleton of this prayer. Well, you may ask, is it ever right to actually pray these actual words? Um, Well, uh, Jesus did say, uh, when you pray, when you pray, and it may be that it's okay in certain circumstances to pray that. You know, the Anglican prayer book that was first published in 1549 uh, said that this prayer must be included in public worship. You, you can't have a proper constituted service without reciting this prayer. The Westminster Assembly of the Fines that uh, drew up the Westminster Confession of Faith of the Presbyterian uh, Church in their directory of public worship says that it recommends that it should be used. It doesn't command that it would be used, but it recommends that it should be used. And then John Owen, uh, who is the towering figure of all the Puritans, uh, said uh, that it should not be used because of that prohibition on mindless repetition. And as, a non, as nonconformists, we have generally uh, followed that pattern and that recommendation of John Owen, and we actually haven't uh, used it much in our services. However, I've come to the conclusion, because Jesus says, when you pray uh, in uh, um, uh, Luke 11, when you pray in Luke 11, that it's not wrong to pray these actual words as long as we understand what we're praying. And the word are indicates that it should be prayed in the gathered assembly of the church uh, when we are together. Uh, We are to pray with our hearts, and if our hearts, uh, if we are to pray with our hearts, our minds need to be engaged, and we need to understand what we're praying. But the primary function of these words is to provide a a tool to help us to order our prayers when we come before God. So, it's a teaching device, a teaching tool. The prayer, secondly, was given with the full intention of giving a, a comprehensive basis for ordering our prayers. In verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. The NIV says, this then is how you should pray. And that's in the imperative uh, mode. So, Jesus is actually commanding his disciples to pray in this way. As to the content of our prayers, as to the order of our praying, as to the arrangement of our prayers, the whole climate of our praying is to be governed by the Word of God and primarily by what is revealed to us in the Lord's Prayer, uh, where we have the things that should be, ought to be included when it comes to praying. 
The prayers of God's people are not to be governed by the impulses and whims and fancies of their own hearts and wispy thoughts and inclinations that enter their minds from time to time that they put down to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but it is they are to be governed by the revealed Word of God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he has commanded us to pray then like this. So if we ignore the pattern that he has given and uh, lean on our own understanding, to quote Proverbs uh, 3, we violate and we sin against God. So this is a teaching device for prayer. It's, It's a pattern for prayer. And then it is a a believer's prayer. Many commentators think it would be much better to refer to this prayer as the disciples' prayer or as the believer's prayer because it's not the Lord's prayer. Because in this prayer, uh, Jesus asks for the forgiveness of our debts. Well, he had no debt or sin to forgive. So it's not a prayer that he prays or needs to pray. It's a a prayer that is given to us to help us in our praying. And uh, who then uh, should pray this prayer? Well, those opening words give us a clue. Our Father who is in heaven. It's those who have been born again into the family of God, have been adopted by the Father into the family, and have the right exclusively to come before His throne and call Him Abba Father. This is is not a prayer uh, for all of mankind. It's a prayer for believing people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says in Romans, are children of the living God who can come before him, Romans 8 and Galatians 4, and call him Abba Father. And that is a peculiarly New Testament teaching and New Testament doctrine. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father occasionally, but not very often, and usually in terms of creation, being the father of all. But, says Sinclair Ferguson, you cannot open the pages of the New Testament without realizing that one of the great things that makes it so new is that in every way it has men and women calling God Father. The unbeliever cannot address God in that way because he, as Jesus said, is a child of the devil. Or as Paul says, is a, uh, are, they are children of wrath. But the believer who has been regenerated, born into the family of God, adopted uh, by his, uh, uh, God uh, who becomes his father, he alone can pray this prayer. That's further illustrated uh, when you look at the order of the petitions. Uh, You have six petitions, and the first three petitions uh, concern God, His name, His kingdom, and His will. Is the unbeliever interested in any of those things? He's interested in his own name or his family name. He's interested in building his own kingdom and doing his own will. 
Ah, yes, you might say, but he is interested in bread and daily needs. But you see, not in that order. Only the true child of God puts his bread, his temporal needs, after God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. If I have to be brought to absolute poverty that God's name will be hallowed, let it be. If I have to sacrifice every material possession that I possess that his kingdom might come, let it be. If I have to sacrifice every cherished dream and will of my own that I have drawn with my own fleshly hand of rebellion that his will might be done, let it be. Well, who prays like that? Who thinks like that? Only the true believer who knows he has been redeemed at the infinite cost of the blood of God's own Son and who has been adopted into the family can pray like that. This prayer is the property of believing people. So we have uh, this prayer as a teaching device. There's a pattern for prayer. Uh, It provides a pattern for prayer, and it is a believer's prayer. Let's look at the prayer um, itself. It begins with our approach to God, our Father in heaven. Now, there are three petitions that uh, relate to God's concerns. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then three petitions relative to our own needs. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. And then at the end, you have this benediction, this postscript, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you know most modern versions, including the ESV, doesn't include that benediction. And uh, that's because the best and the earliest manuscripts didn't have it. And so Church Fathers, Oregon, uh, writing in the third century, makes no mention of it. Gregory of Nicaea, writing in the fourth century, makes no mention of it. Uh, Augustine, writing in the fifth century, says that it did circulate, but it shouldn't be there. And Thomas Manton, uh, one of the, the great Puritans who produced a commentary on the Lord's Prayer uh, in the 17th century, doesn't even deal with the uh, benediction at the end because so convinced was he that it shouldn't uh, be there. Uh, but in saying that, it's not wrong to pray it because it reflects accurately other portions of Scripture. It is drawn from 1 Chronicles 29 and 11 and 1 Timothy 1.17, and uh, the compilers of the authorized version felt that it was an appropriate way to end uh, that prayer, but that's why most versions don't, uh, modern versions don't contain it. Uh, so let's look at the, that first statement which deals with our approach to God, our Father in heaven. Now that tells us four things about our approach to God in prayer. First of all, that we approach Him corporately. We approach Him corporately. Notice the use of the word our, our Father who is in heaven. What Jesus has in mind is providing a pattern for the corporate prayer times of the people of God. It's not my Father who is in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven. 
that when we come to God, we come conscious of the intimacy of the fellowship, not only that we enjoy with God, but the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. Now, this is an important point. We dare not approach God, our Heavenly Father, without a sense of unity and intimacy in the family of God. Because if God is our Father, then every other believer is our brother and sister. Our prayer, uh, prayers, indeed our worship, is unacceptable to God when there is no sense of unity in that prayer time or in that worship time. That's what Jesus taught back in Matthew 5, 23. Just look over uh, the page, Matthew 5 and verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You, You worship only after you're reconciled to your brother. You pray only after you are reconciled to your sister. Acceptable prayer is united prayer. Unacceptable prayer is divided prayer. And that's the whole basis, you see, of corporate praying. Why have a prayer meeting here on a Tuesday night? Why not just stay at home and and have an hour meeting at the same time, but praying on our own. Why not spend that time at home rather than driving here on a damp November evening to meet with other Christians to pray? Well, because there are special promises attached to corporate praying. In Matthew uh, 18 and verse uh, 12, Jesus says, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they asked, it will be done by, uh, for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, he says, then I will be in the midst of them. And so he says that he attaches a special promise where the two or three are gathered together and agree. And that word agree means to harmonize, to, uh, um, uh, uh, to, to sing together, to synthesize together, uh, to sound together. And that's why we add our amen. What does amen mean? It doesn't mean that was a good prayer. It means we agree. I agree with that. That's why uh, occasionally in prayer meetings you hear audible groans and you go, yeah, and oh, yeah. And, and, and there's this confirmation of what's going on because there are special promises uh, uh, attached to prayer when believers pray together. That's why you should be at the prayer meeting because the, of the promises that are attached to corporate prayer. And so Jesus says that this is a prayer for the corporate people of God. That there, we, we come in, in unity together praying to our Father who is in heaven. If you're sitting there with angst and awkwardness and resentment and disdain, God will never hear those prayers because it's the believers coming together when they agree when they sign together in prayer. 
it comes pretty close to the bone when Peter writes husbands uh, to husbands and tells them to be considered uh, to be considerate to their wives so that their prayers will not be hindered be considerate to your wives so your prayers will not be hindered jesus says that you must be considered to your brothers and sisters your fellow christians so that your prayers will not be hindered so uh, we pray corporately uh, secondly we pray intimately our father our father i presumably when jesus first preached this sermon he preached it in aramaic the new testament is in greek and the greek word for father is pater which is is the more formal address it would be uh, equivalent to our father that's why it's translated uh, by father but jesus spoke and preached in aramaic and the word that he would have used is this word abba which is more equivalent to our uh, dad or daddy. It's a much more familiar term. It's a much more intimate term. And that's the term that's uh, picked up by Paul uh, in Galatians 4. Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. That the evidence that you have received the spirit is that you're on intimate terms with the great God of heaven. And that you can come before him and dare to call him your father. Now, remember, please, that this concept of the fatherhood of God must be based on the Bible and not on our own experience. If you base it on your own experience, you could be bitterly disappointed. Some here have grown up with abusive fathers who were the very essence of meanness and selfishness. And you can't uh, 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 think of a father without thinking of a clenched fist, a furrowed brow, or a rod in his hand. And if you project that picture up onto God, your view of God will be greatly distorted because we have a God who is a good father, who uh, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Just turn over a few pages, please, to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. You get this lovely picture of the fatherhood of God. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, verse 9, Matthew 7, verse 9. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So uh, Jesus pictures a, 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 um, a son coming to his father and he asks for uh, bread and those little loaves of barley loaves look like little pebbles, stones from the beach. But, but no father is going to give his, his son um, uh, a stone instead of bread. The moment he bit into it, he would break a tooth. No, no father would deceive his son like that. Or if he asked for fish, would give him a serpent or snake. Well, uh, snake flesh, serpent flesh. 
was very similar in texture and appearance to fish flesh. And when cooked in a stew, you couldn't tell the difference. But according to Jewish law, fish, uh, 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 snake flesh um, was unclean. It would defile. Well, well, no Jewish father is going to defile and hurt his son in that way, even though he is depraved, even though he's evil. Here Jesus declares the universal depravity of man, of mankind. Though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who are His children? How much more? Some of you aren't saved this morning and you're wondering if God will take you, if God wants you, if God desires you. he's He's a good God. How much more will He give good gifts to those who asked Him? You have burdens and concerns and anxieties. And and you come to Him and you pray about how much more? He's a good Father. And don't let your um, uh, experience of an earthly Father distort how you relate to your heavenly Father. And then some of you had... uh, Fathers, perhaps, that were unprincipled and undisciplined, that they give in to every uh, whim that you displayed and indulged you at every turn, who, who were uh, unfit to have the name of Father because they didn't know how to say no to you. We have a Father who loves us enough to discipline. He loves and chastens the one He accepts as a son. A Father who dares to say no to the the whims and fancies of His children. And we must be careful then that that picture of a self-indulgent or an indulgent Father, that we don't project that out onto God either, that our, our concept of the fatherhood of God must be biblically defined. We can come, you just think of this for a moment, we can come before the throne of Almighty God, the one who inhabits eternity, the one who was and is and is to come. We can come before that God in Christ and say, our Father, He is our Father. What a privilege that is. So, our approach to God, uh, we come to Him corporately, intimately, and then reverently. Our Father who is in heaven, that He may be my Father, and I may be on intimate terms with Him, and I may be able to come with boldness and with confidence before my throne but it is a throne to which I come. He is the one who is in heaven, the one who rules over all, the one who is holy and righteous, the one who is beautiful in his perfections, the one who, who rules over all, the sovereign God of the universe. And sometimes, you see, Christians have a distorted view between the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that the God of the Old Testament who thundered from Zion, who uh, thundered from Sinai, sorry, when the, the law was given, where fire broke out 
and the people dared not approach him for uh, uh, fear of being consumed in his wrath. The God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the God who struck down the man who put his hand out to steady the ark, that somehow that that God has changed. That he was like that in the Old Testament, but he's not like that in the New Testament. He's our Father in the New Testament. But God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 12 and verse 28 and 29, our God is, is, not was, is a consuming fire, and those who worship Him must worship Him in reverence and in fear. That's New Testament. That's bang up the date. That's for now. Those who worship Him must worship Him in reverence and fear. And the God who the angels in Isaiah 6 had to cover their faces because they dare not look on His uncreated holiness even though they had never blushed because of sin. The God who, who, who is the focal point of their adoration and worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the God that we pray to. He is our Father, but He is our Father in heaven. He's the great God of heaven. And He must be approached reverently and in fear. So I heard of a, a, a preacher a number of years ago who came over to Northern Ireland. He was holding rallies uh, about the, the province, and uh, he opened the service in prayer, and he says, Hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. It's Fred here. He's the God of heaven. He's the God that sits on the throne. He is the God who uh, is is righteous through and through, and is of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. Yes, we have access into His presence, and we can come before Him and call Him our Father, but He still is the God of heaven. So we approach Him confidently, we approach Him intimately, we approach Him reverently, and we approach Him confidently. He is our Father, but He is in heaven. He rules over all. He is, as the writer to the Hebrews says, is seated on a throne, that He's the one in, the, in absolute control even over the fall of a sparrow from the tree, never mind the fall and rising of nations. He is the great God of heaven, and we come before a God who is able to do immeasurably more, Paul says, immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, exceedingly abundantly more, the authorized version says, than we can ask or imagine. This is our God. Our God is powerful. Our God is sovereign. Our God rules over all. And through prayer, we can come and petition the Lord of glory to move on our behalf, to answer our prayers, to intervene in our dark situations and resolve them for His honor and glory. This is our God. 
We are coming to a king, says the hymn writer. Large petitions with us bring. We are coming to a king. Large petitions with us bring. And sometimes the lack of fruit and the lack of results that we see in our own life and in the lives of others uh, is, uh, can be more traced to the feebleness and fickleness of our prayers than to God's willingness to answer those prayers. E.M. Bounds says, prayer can do anything. Listen to this. Prayer can do anything that God can do. Do you believe that? Prayer can do anything that God can do. John Blanchard says, prayer is the sinew that moves the muscle, that moves the arm of omnipotence. Prayer is the sinew that moves the muscle, that moves the arm of omnipotence. And so we can come with confidence and we can come with boldness before His throne and pour out our prayers to Him, knowing, knowing that there's nothing that God cannot do. What an incentive then to pray. So we approach Him confident. uh, uh, um, Sorry, we approach Him corporately, corporately our Father who is in heaven. We approach Him intimately. He is our Father. We approach Him reverently. He is our Father who is in heaven. And we approach Him confidently. He is our Father, but He's still in heaven. He rules over all, and He can do whatever He pleases. What confidence that gives us for prayer. Let's pray.